I sometimes thought that Bertie Ahern has given me a huge honour. And then on mature reflection, felt that you had given me less than a great honour. Because I had to go up to Belfast from Monday to Wednesday, week after week, and stay in the castle. We negotiated in some nice places, but castle buildings wasn't one of them. And we were locked up in that place for what seemed days and days. The negotiations were taking place in this old 1960s building. But anyway, you get the picture. And it was about four or five floors. And there were lots of people in the building. So it was a village, it was a town maybe. There was a lot of people coming and going. Well, I suppose from an official point of view, it was all right. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't ideal. It wasn't an ideal location, but nonetheless, it was time to get down to business. In this episode, we're going inside castle buildings to hear from the political parties and government representatives who sat around the negotiating table. We'll hear about how the talks actually worked, the issues that needed to be teased out, and the bumps in the road along the way. We are determined that the unionist voice will be heard one way or another. This is life or death. It's not for your us to the sound bite of the last person who went in and the last person who went out. There is an opportunity for peace. Everyone in that room is responsible in some way or other for the situation in which we all find ourselves. I'm Bertie Hearn, Taoiseach of Ireland from 1997 until 2008. And this is the story of the Good Friday Agreement, as I remember it. Episode 5, The Talks. In the autumn of 1997, the multi-party talks that led to the Good Friday Agreement got underway. Occasionally, the talks would move to Dublin or London, but the centre of gravity for the bulk of the process was castle buildings on the Stormont Estate in Belfast, just down the road from the iconic Parliament buildings. With the two governments and eight political parties participating in the talks, each having large delegations, we were all assigned offices in those buildings for the duration. My delegation from the Irish government side was led by Minister for Foreign Affairs David Andrews, Minister of State Liz O'Donnell, Attorney General David Byrne, and my special advisor on Northern Ireland, Martin Manser. A host of senior Irish officials participated in the talks, including Paddy Tien, Tim Dalton and Dermot Gallagher. The British government delegation was led by Tony Blair and the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Mo Molam, and senior officials such as Jonathan Powell, the Chief of Staff for Tony Blair, Alastair Campbell, the Head of Press, and at the Northern Ireland office, Bill Jeffries and Chris McCabe. The two government delegations also received valuable support from David Donoghue, Peter Bell at the British Irish Secretariat based in Murrayfield. There was an extensive list of issues to work through and this was done in plenary sessions involving all of the delegations chaired by George Mitchell and a whole range of bilateral meetings between my government, the British government and the individual parties. One of the most significant members of the Irish delegation was Tim O'Connor. I recently sat down with Tim to look back on his recollections of the key issues we covered. Great, and well done to you and to Newstalk for doing this, because I agree, this is really, really important. Yeah, it'll be good to have on the, on the record. 
Tim was a senior official in the Irish government team at the multi-party negotiations. He was deputy to the late Dermot Gallagher, who was the head of the Anglo-Irish division at the time. What was different about these talks was a number of things. First of all, they were inclusive in the sense that they had a much wider range of people around the table and they were comprehensive in terms of the issues on the table. So it's simpler, actually, all right, if you say keep it down to two or three issues. And really, But the problem with that is that doesn't, that's not going to cover the basis upon which, you know, you can find an agreement that everybody can sign up to. So I think in, there was a much wider range of people around the table and that, of course, complexifies things, but it means that every, you know, most people are, that are neither in the room. And then secondly, comprehensiveness of the, of the, of the issues. So I suppose, uh, in the course of that autumn, then in the winter, we are, there's this big range of issues that have to be addressed. And there, and it was kind of structured then on the basis of, if you recall, the, the, the three. So there was a kind of a box, a basket of issues. There was a constitutional question, which was huge. There was the whole question of the institutions and they were being, they were being divided up into those three strands, you know, relations. This was a John Hume um, concept, really, the three strands, which was relations within Northern Ireland, relations between North and South and the island of Ireland, and then relations between Ireland and Britain. So they were the three strands. And so the discussions were taking place across all, all of those. And then there was a range of other issues uh, as well, which have to do with, if you like, the, the ending of conflict, what to do about prisoners, what to do about weapons, uh, you know, reform of police, reform of the administration of justice, economic and social rights, um, uh, and, and so on. And then a very interesting development that you, and again, I think John Hume uh, came up with this idea was that, that, um, for the first time ever, at the end of these talks, they were going to be put to the people in referendum. So, so this was a very, this was a very kind of a novel concept as well, and a very important kind of part of it. So, all of that. So, if you like, at any one time, you were the, you, you know, you and Tony Blair, uh, obviously working with George Mitchell, who played such an important role as well. But really, to be frank, it was it was the two governments, and it was you and Tony Blair had to drive the, you know, the the search then through working away sort of systematically, painfully through all of those issues in the detail, looking at this piece, all of it aimed at trying to find a framework in the end that everybody not necessarily could agree with in a way, but could live with. As we look back on it now, it may seem as though we had a set menu of topics to talk through in our negotiations, but it was far more complex than that. Not only were we going to reform policing and create new bodies to govern Northern Ireland, but we also had to deal with many strong personalities around one table, some of whom could barely look in the direction of others, never mind negotiate. Here's Liz O'Donnell, Minister of State at the Department of Foreign Affairs at the time. It was very slow to start, as you remember. As soon as Sinn Féin came in, the DUP walked out. So I was always conscious that the fact that such a big cohort of unionist thinking, political unionism, was outside the, the talks, that it was a deficit and it put huge, pre- huge pressure on the Ulster Unionist Party, David Trimble in particular, because every time David wanted to do something progressive or make a concession or, you know, seek meaningful progress in the talks, um, he was vilified outside um, by the DUP. So that was a very difficult position and both governments knew that. So we spent quite a bit of our time trying to support uh, the Ulster Unionist Party uh, in uh, and David in particular from you know, from assaults from within his own party and within his own constituency. There it was, was a, wasn't it a, a fact that time 
in that day when Sinn Féin came in and DUP and Rob McCartney walked out, yeah, um, uh, that David w- w- could have went under that stage. And yeah. while we were supporting him, it was at that stage that the two loyalist parties also propped him up. Yeah. Remember that day where they walked in together with him to prop him up? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, but in, in fairness to him, I think in history terms, he... He was brave to stay in at that time because he was. He, 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 he was alone. He was. Yeah, and sometimes I felt he was alone even in his own party. Um, you know, there was there were divided councils within the Ulster Unionist Party. Some were only half-heartedly supporting it. Uh, John Taylor wasn't as supportive as David was, and you know, Reg Empey was always supportive. So, you know, we were never sure that they were going to walk out any minute. So there was a lot of tiptoeing around uh, the Ulster Unionist. Party um, um, delegation. Um, I, I think that uh, the women's coalition made a significant contribution uh, to that. And as you say, the loyalist parties uh, were were desperate to actually to reach a, a political settlement and to, to end the violence. Uh, and and that was very important. You know, lives were at stake for, on their side as well. Whenever Sinn Féin joined the talks uh, in September, we didn't know whether David Trimble was going to come back into the talks. This is Gary McMichael of the UDP. Trimble was essentially left on his own, um, and to be fair to him, you know, whenever uh, Paisley uh, ran in those in that in that uh, situation, you know, Trimble stepped up, and when he stepped up, we stood beside him. That wasn't easy either, because we're in a, we were also in an environment where we never had for the support for what we were doing within uh, loyalism because there was a lot of fear and anxiety and concern. A lot of people actually were listening to Paisley and not listening to us in terms of what their position was. Uh, So we were also always found it difficult in order to to bring people with us. But if we we hadn't have done that, if we hadn't have supported Trimble and hadn't have went into those uh, talks, Trimble might not have went. He may, he, may, he may not have joined the talks. He, he, he may, have, he, I because he'd more or less, at least the others thought McCartney and Paisley thought he, he was going to go too. And we had to see where, and from our point of view, we had to see where this was going to go. So it was a seminal moment. So we had to at least see where it was going to go. The Austro Unionists uh, read out a litany of quotations from the past from Sinn Féin to demonstrate Sinn Féin's support for the IRA. Uh, They didn't seem to notice, of course, that uh, that past, we hope, is behind us and the violence has ended uh, and that we're in a new situation where uh, all parties should now, in the new peaceful situation, be be leaving that past behind us. A difficulty throughout the talks was the fact that the Unionists and Sinn Féin wouldn't negotiate together. This was mainly a Unionist policy, they spoke to the chair, to George Mitchell, but unfortunately during the talks, we didn't have many bilateral meetings between those two parties. It was regrettable, but that's the way it had to be. We didn't engage with Sinn Féin directly. We engaged through George Mitchell. You yeah. would know the position. Yeah. This is Dermot Nesbitt of the UUP. It was a challenging but fascinating time. But Sinn Féin can barely say the words Northern Ireland. It's always the north of Ireland. They will not take part in Westminster. So with rights go obligations. And they do not fulfil the obligation but wish for the right 
for Irish nationalism, but they don't fulfil the obligation of citizenship. And that's where I have a difficulty. Not with SDLP, not with others, because they fully participate, but with Sinn Féin. They wish, dare I use that colloquial phrase, they wish their cake and eat it. Here's Jerry Kelly of Sinn Féin. Political unionism, like the Unionist Party, and the, I mean, even the UUP, right up till the Good Friday Agreement and past it was signed, never spoke to us. Um, there's, there's a, there's a story Jerry Adams had uh, told when he went, went into the toilet and David Trumbull was there, and he was standing beside him, and he says, uh, "Hi, are you?" And he was, he was peeing. He says, uh, "Is this a pee process?" <laughs> and, and he says David did not find it funny um, he, he, I think he says something like grew up and walked out but, but that's the I mean how you got to I mean when you think about it how we got to the Good Friday Agreement without the unionist talk now there was proximity talks and it was all of that and there was people going back and forward and all of that and, and I mean I suppose that's how we got there. Yeah. But when I suppose it's it's a bit amazing that to get there without them talking. So I said, like, they used to in the corridor and I would always talk to them. We had a habit of it. And just say hello, I mean. And uh they they would some of them would actually walk to the wall and walk past me facing the wall. But look, I mean that's that's the un, the unfortunate thing. That's just a sign of what there was at the time. Um and and they, I think, in fairness, most of them um, just moved on. Um, not all of them, but most of them. This is Jonathan Powell, Chief of Staff to Tony Blair. I, mean, I think George Mitchell does a sainthood for sitting there through all of that and chairing those meetings and putting up all the nonsense and unions not being prepared to talk directly to Sinn Féin, but only to talk to the chairman. And you had Jerry Adams chasing David Trimble into the gents to try and get him to talk there. Uh, I mean, it really all became uh, a bit silly. And it's not surprising, I suppose. It was difficult for them. They'd all come together really for the first time in inclusive talks. The female participants in the talks were also on the receiving end of some hostility. The women's coalition, some of the less respectful people described the women's coalition as the WC Mm. and that sort of pathetic stupidity. That's David Andrews, the Irish Foreign Affairs Minister at the time of the talks. What he's referring to there was the misogyny that some of the women experienced at the hands of some politicians involved in the talks. Here's the chair of the talks, George Mitchell. Women led by uh, Monica McWilliams and Pearl Sager, both outstanding leaders, got into the talks and although they were small and at first they had a tough time, some of the Male members of the talks were insulting, uh, demeaning to them. Uh, over time, I was able to establish a, a little better sense of order uh, and courtesy. And the women played a very important role in the ultimate uh, negotiation. I asked Liz O'Donnell for her thoughts on this. I didn't get the worst of it. I think the women, Monica and, and her colleagues in the, in the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition, got the brunt of that misogyny uh, and disrespect. And now, in fairness, George Mitchell, our chairman, called it out and wouldn't have it. Uh, so I think it was just outside the negotiations. In previous negotiations, they had a hard time. And subsequently, in when, when the, the assembly started and they experienced desperate verbal abuse and just old-fashioned misogyny, you know, just not recognising 
or respecting their, you know, their right to be there. Uh, I don't think they treated them as proper politicians. For me, I think I got off lightly because I was representing a sovereign government and they had a they had a kind of a I suppose a reserved respect for me. They weren't going to be openly rude to me. God knows what they said behind my back. I mean, looking back, yeah, I mean there was all sorts of things. Here's Avilakin Murray of the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition. I, I suppose it's it's true to say that at the start a number of the parties and a, a male dominated society a bit, but a number of the, the, the party representatives, maybe not the leaders, had had difficulty dealing with women, which <laughs> I observed with great interest because <laughs> a lot of my cabinet were women, or at least a number of yes. them. But I think you managed to get over that by, by uh, uh, loving with a lot of them, by <laughs> managing to talk. I mean, how difficult was that? In, 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 in I know you did it as a strategy, but it, yeah, was, no. it, was, it wasn't easy. <laughs> no, and I mean, you know, we were told to go back and breed for Ulster and things like that. I mean, and you dealt with it sort of with, with a degree of humour. I, I mean, I heard worse things even said. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think the Pearl responded to that one by by standing up and singing a verse of "Stand by Your Man." But <laughs> in some ways, I think you know it it, it 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 almost helped us because, well, apart from poor old George Mitchell, who's who was absolutely appalled by all this carry on, um, you know, in terms of the media and that, it 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 also sort of reflected badly on 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 those that were 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 saying it. And I have to say, you know, it largely came from members of the DUP. You know, I mean, it wasn't <laughs> right across the board. Um, one of the things that actually did annoy me, uh, though probably, again, it was sort of a tactic we should have expected, was all the parties, uh, I think virtually all the parties, um, well, not the PUP actually, used their women representatives to attack the Women's Coalition. Mm. And and that that annoyed me more than the men actually being misogynistic, to be honest, mm. because you sort of say, you know, go, go back to the ark, basically, you know. Um, so yeah, no, it, it 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 it, but it could it got a bit draining after a while. Mm. But it, but it also motivated us to sort of say, look, mm. you know, this is the sort of politics mm. that we're actually dealing with. So it, re- it is really important, irrespective of what party, to actually get more women and broader representation to politics. We were very clear that we had to talk to everybody. And I mean, that wasn't easy for some of our members, you know, who ha- did have relatives shot and, and things like that. Engaging with paramilitary prisoners was an area where the Women's Coalition really led the charge. It was a great example of that group's strategy of talking to everyone, as Monica McWilliams recalls. The prisoners on the loyalist side in the uh, UDA said to their leaders of their party, to Gary McMichael and to another good man at the time, David Evans, you guys have to leave the table. We don't believe these talks are going to work. They're just going around in circles. And we made a decision to go into the prison at their invitation <laughs> to speak um, to Michael Stone, um, uh, Adair, Johnny Adair, and Bobby Philpot, three pretty hard men, and um, the prison officers put Alsatian dogs on the ankles of Pearl, May Blood and myself as we walked through the gate. I think it probably was a way of intimidating us. They certainly succeeded. What was more intimidating was the hard porn on the walls above the secretaries in the prison officer's area, which I was shocked at. I wondered, could I be much more shocked? And the prison officer said, I'm going to lock you up with these three men now in this mobile hut and I'll come back in three hours. And that's what happened. 
and we convinced them, we hoped, that their negotiators were playing a good role. Now, why would I have stuck my neck out to the extent that inclusion was really being taken to its limits? Because these were not good characters. They were in prison for some terrible offences. Michael Stone was famous for what he'd done in Milltown Cemetery that day. And I remember thinking, well, we do need the voice of working-class loyalism at this table if we are going to have a peace deal. If we've brought them in from the cold, they need to be kept in the cold. It wasn't a patronising way of doing it because going into prison wasn't easy. And Mo Molan went in three months later, to her credit, and they made a lot of fun of her you know, passing a cup of tea over to Johnny Adair, saying, two sugars, Mr Adair, as if that was, you know, funny. We were in serious business here. We were in the business of keeping people at the table. I looked around the table one day and I thought, I wonder, will anybody at this table be killed? Because that can also happen if you look like you're coming towards an agreement. Each of the issues that were being debated by the negotiations proved tricky from every angle. Chris McKay, former political director of the Northern Ireland office, was centrally involved here. They were big issues. They were they were issues. There there was always that tension between keeping on unionists, keeping unionists on side, and and, and doing what Republican, particularly Sinn Fein, required. But the the bigger issues were almost policing. How we were going to deal with policing, and you've been working on the policing issue. The RUC was dreadfully sensitive, and it was a matter of getting it taken forward in a way. I, again, I'm just, I mean, this is an opportunity. I'm blowing my own trumpet to an extent, but it, it, I was recalling in 19, 1979, I was asked to write a paper on the, on the RUC and its possible future because I, I'd been doing a thesis on, on them at that point in the history of that uh, outside. And, uh, I still remember the phrase, which was that in, in my opinion, while, while the harp is surmounted by the crown in their badges, they will never be acceptable to nationalists. And I think that was, the, that was what I was preaching. I didn't, I was loyal when I was working for the chief constable to what I was doing, but I felt that there would be changes and, and eventually the crown went, although there was a compromise in that too, because it sort of comes in. So it was, the, it was constantly checking out what people might actually live with and moving it forward. But setting up international commissions was quite a way of doing these things and that the policing was done in that same way and bringing in people that were sort of balanced and acceptable. So policing, I felt would, I felt that that, it, it got there and the two governments agreed eventually and the public accepted and the PSNI now has been accepted by all and great things have happened, although there's, there's criticism of them, but as much from unionists as from, from nationalists now. Was seen as a success story. And- I believe so, yes. Yeah. It was a wonderful commission, the whole, with Chris Patton, who had, had worked in Northern Ireland, this whole record, and the people they brought on, like Patrick Lynch from New York, etc. It was a good, good, good panel. And then prisoners. Yeah. At, at that stage, I, I can't recall what kind of numbers we were dealing with and, you know, prisoners, but we were, we were talking about large, large numbers. Yes, we were indeed. At, at, the, at the height of the at prison, there were 3,000 odd, more than 3,000, which had risen from the, 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 the middle from about six, seven hundred before the troubles, it was up to three thousand. There were still a lot of those left, even with our half release schemes. Mm. Uh, prisoners have been made very clear to us that they were very, very important. And when I was in as director of regimes, my one of my roles was to advise on the Secretary of State how how, how things could, what could be done to start moving in the right direction. So we, with difficulty, persuaded 
the Home Office to transfer their prisoners to Northern Ireland, which they objected to because they had that we had half release, automatic fifty percent remission, and they didn't. Uh, but that was carried through, and that sort of softened things up a little bit. And the other we we let one hundred and thirty out for Christmas, people with serious offences, and they all came back. And the groundwork was done with that, and there was no question of them not coming back because it was agreed between the systems. So I thought that prisoners would move forward. I've, I have always believed on the, in the case of history, uh, it's been shown that, that prisoners, after particular troubles end in Ireland, get out. I think you've, you've written, Chris, that and reminded people, which is, I think, well forgotten, <laughs> that after the 1956-62 campaign, that, that it was the, the Stormont government actually released the, the prisoners at that stage. It was. It was. They let they, they, they let them out within a year or so at the maximum. Most others, uh, even some that would be convicted, if not actually murder, but of serious offences connected with the murder of police and others, uh, they released them. I won't name names, but it's on the public record who they were. And the it, it's, it's available in Hansard, the statements made were that they were released under the royal prerogative by Her Majesty. They were not released by the government. Her Majesty the Queen exercised her right of royal prerogative, and there was no unionist opposition on account of that. So do I take it then that if, while there was quite a lot of objection to the release of prisoners on licence, shall I quickly add, because it, 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 it is a distinction, that that, that was something that the, the NIO would not have been over upset about. I mean, I know there was, it, it was difficult for all of us to see some of the prisoners released as part of the Good Friday Agreement, but there, there was a precedent, a previous. There were precedents. Right? I know the numbers were totally different. There were precedents in, in, in during the Second World War after the campaign then, which had resulted in, in the execution of some IRA people in, in, in well, in, in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, but th those that were done, I think, by 1949. Everybody had been involved in that campaign was out. So it was, and in the 30s as well, the same thing happened. But a very, very important counter to that was our strong belief that victims came very, very central as well. And in the Good Friday Agreement, I mean, victims were, 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 were key to that, victims and survivors and their families. And that was very, very important. And I was aware of both because I was, I had responsibility for the victim side later on when I was out of prisons, but on the political side of things. And it's so heartrending and we see it still today. Uh, the, 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 the need out there. And that, I can understand the grief of people saying prisoners are after two years, but uh, we haven't got justice or even our heartbreak in any way ameliorated. When Sinn Féin IRA blocked the road to the decommissioning of weapons, we and the Irish government set up an international body under the distinguished American Senator George Mitchell. Even then, Sinn Féin said the IRA would not begin taking its weapons out of commission. Even then, Sinn Féin was no more prepared to accept the principles put forward by Senator Mitchell than they had been prepared to accept those in the Downing Street Declaration. The issue of decommissioning became the difficult bit. Martin Manser, who was my special advisor in Northern Ireland, recounts the bumps in the road we encountered during the talks. Certainly, you know, the understanding, say, with Father Reed, Father Alec Reed, 
was that, uh, you know, decommissioning certainly had to be part of it, but at the end of the process rather than at the beginning. And I think the trouble was is partly for sort of unionist political reasons, there was always a push to try and uh, sort of push it forward. And ideally, and of course, what, as you know, in the summer of 97, what um, the Republican movement was most frightened of is that you would have a talks process entirely dominated by decommissioning and sort of defusing that. Um, now, that, that, was, that, that was partly done, as I say, in Bruton's last days, uh, sort of uh, uh, making it clear that uh, Blair is that, uh, no, he wouldn't allow uh, the talks process to be entirely dominated by the subject of, subject of decommissioning. Um, but you see, the question is, yes, of course, and I mean, in the early days post-agreement, um, you know, Martin McGuinness would regularly say, well, now anyone who thinks there's going to be any decommissioning is living in cloud cuckoo land. Um, and, you know, in a sense, we were kind of going around, now we weren't talking only about that. I mean, it was policing and other issues, but... Um, but the question ultimately was, you see, I think they felt if you don't mind my say, saying so, mm. probably correctly, that ultimately the two governments were not overly pushed about decommissioning, provided weapons were not used. used yeah. Uh, I mean, that was certainly true of Blair. Mm. Um, but, you know, the Unionists, they were a different kettle of fish. And ultimately, Sinn Féin had to decide is well, do we want to be part of government in the North or do we want to hold on to weapons which in principle were committed not to using? And so it's a question of um, what price they were prepared to pay. And I remember being asked at a local um, uh, radio is, um, do you trust the Republican leadership? And I remember replying from the top of my head, well, I trust the necessities they are under. And that is the point is what price were they prepared to pay for not, I mean, was non-decommissioning, was that the summit of their ambitions? And the answer is it was. They wanted mm. to be in government. Mm. So ultimately, uh, by degrees, and of course, we had sort of rather uh, funny things like I had to go over along with uh, um, uh, one or two uh, British security people to um, talk to an ex-Finnish president in Paris who had been military but sort of severely overweight, and we had sort of visions of him getting stuck in a hole, sort of... <laughs> Ma 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 Marty Atasari. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> anyway, um, it, it, it didn't happen. But I would have to say on the decommissioning front, and you won't mind my mentioning a name, is that I do think despite the International Commission on Decommissioning who sort of sort of ran the show and the rules is, but it was enormously facilitated uh, by the Department of Justice here, in particular its head, uh, Tim Dalton. Uh, to my mind, he is uh, uh, 
the real <laughs> hero outside the Republican movement of the uh, sort of decommissioning, because I mean, all sorts of logistical arrangements had to be made, and the sort mm. of uh, presumably, um, uh, you know, the guardy told, well, uh, <laughs> not to go raiding there at this particular time, and so on. But anyway, um, um, you know, it came came to fruition. Now, I mean, I would one would probably um, be naive to think that absolutely everything everything went i think when we you, you you look back and say was was there a time was there one time where you thought um th there was certainty uh, i think the answer to that th no there wasn't but i think if we we felt that if we could get the negotiations started and if we could get most people around the table there was an opportunity but there was still um, breaches of the Mitchell principles, which uh, were set down. Mitchell principles basically said that if you wanted to be at the negotiating table, if you wanted political progress, it had to be done by peaceful democratic means, no punishment beatings, no bombings, no shootings. And we weren't able to get that. We made the mistake in Christmas 97 that we had the recess for the Christmas break too early because as soon as the talks stopped, the violence started again. From the studios of ITN, the news and sport with Dennis Tuohy. Hello, welcome to the programme. The headlines. Ulster peace threatened after top loyalist is murdered in a maze. Sporadic violence flared in Northern Ireland tonight as a loyalist terrorist organisation pledged to avenge the murder of its leader. Billy Wright, nicknamed King Rat, was shot dead inside the top security maze prison. Three Republican inmates are being questioned. The Northern Ireland Secretary Mo Molam has appealed for calm, urging people to think and think again before they do anything. We had the Billy Wright's murder in, in, in prison in St. Stephen's Day of of 97, uh, that led to reprisals, it led to other killings. Um, so rather than coming back to start the run in uh, to the end of the talks, and we didn't really know at that stage when the talks would end, it was before George Mitchell set a date, but instead of coming back in a good position with people refreshed after Christmas, we came back with an enmity, animosities, you know, reprisals, um, and we made very little progress in January or February. Tonight, in Billy Wright's hometown of Portadown, cars have been hijacked and burned as his supporters mark the passing of one of the province's most ruthless terrorists. Billy Wright was shot dead as he sat in this prison van. As it was taken away from the maze, the bullet holes were still visible. Unfortunately, we had a very difficult period. I guess you'd call it rock bottom over the winter of 1997 and 1998. Chair of the talk, Senator George Mitchell. Just before Christmas, I convened a meeting of the party leaders. The talks, as you know, Bertie, were conducted, typically the plenary talks, in a very large room. There were then eight political parties, two governments, and the chairman, uh, and probably 75 to 100 people in the room. Each group had staff and others. There was a note taker. And so at General DeChastelin's suggestion, I convened a meeting of just the two leaders of each party in a smaller room, no reporting. Everybody hopefully would speak frankly. And we presented to the party leaders a, a single page document 
which just had on it our best efforts to set forth the questions, the challenges that the parties had to deal with and reach agreement on in order to, in effect, ensure a permanent peace. And we wanted them to adopt that. These were not the answers to the questions, just were the wording of the questions themselves. At first, the meeting went quite well, the quite positive talk between them. And then as so often happened in oral and suddenly, without any warning, somebody said something that the other found insulting and the insult came back the other way. And the meeting just disintegrated in a very short period of time into a negative name calling and insulting discussion of the type that we had had hundreds of days before, every day, back and forth, arguing about history and who said what to whom. And so we adjourned, and I thought that had to be rock bottom. I left and returned to the United States for Christmas, uh, but uh, the governments had decided in advance of that that there was no progress being made in Belfast, and perhaps if they changed the locations for the meetings, uh, there might be some progress. So the January talks were set to take place in London, and then the February talks in Dublin. So I came home for Christmas, and then on the 27th, uh, just uh, two days later, I got the call from Belfast that Billy Wright, uh, a prominent Unionist paramilitary leader who was in prison at the time, had been killed by a group of Republican prisoners. And that touched off a round of tit-for-tat violence that accelerated, threatened, of course, the ceasefires and the talks themselves. So when we gathered in London in January, uh, the mood was very negative, and it was not in any sense a negotiation. The parties were angry back and forth, and one of the consequences was that the governments moved to expel the Loyalist Party, which was led by Gary McMichael, because they felt that some paramilitaries affiliated with that party had been involved in the violence. It was an extremely difficult and controversial conclusion and really infected the entire process. So the governments asked me to go to the room in which Gary and his colleagues were to break the news to them, which I did. And I liked and admired Gary. I felt he was genuine and a strong advocate of peace. So I said to them, uh, I know you're going to be very angry and upset about this, but please don't go out and say anything that would represent a final break, because we're never going to get an agreement without you guys in it, and we'll all try hard to make this a, a suspension for a fixed period of time rather than a permanent expulsion. Well, they were understandably upset, but they went out, they made public statements, they didn't make a final break, and several weeks later, they returned for the final push. Lord John Alderdice of the Alliance Party remembers talking to Gary McMichael about his party's suspension from the talks. If you just looked at it from outside the talks, then, you know, as you say, goodness me, does this mean the whole thing is going to pieces and so on? But actually, I remember having a conversation with Gary McMichael, who was the, the leader of the UDP. And I said, look, Gary, you know, 
no hard feelings with you personally, but we, we've got to do this because the, the way your guys are behaving it just is completely impossible. We've got to move away from all of this violent stuff, not not allow it to become part of the whole fabric of, of society. And, and he said to me, no, look, I completely understand, he said. I need to go back to my people with a big red slap on my face that you guys have given me and say, look what you've created. This is the, I'm trying to work politically in there. I'm trying to represent a loyalist perspective. And I, and I end up getting a slap on the face like that because of what you guys are doing, not because people don't want to work with us. So it was very interesting, actually, the, the private conversations sometimes within these things sometimes give you a little bit more hope. Here's the PUP's Don Purvis. That whole winter period was uh, one of the toughest I think I've ever experienced. The, I think the ball started to roll when your own government took a decision to, um, I think it was, it was David Andrews released. On, on the prisoners. On the prisoners yeah. um, and releasing some, some IRA prisoners. And loyalism went toke, as they say up here. They went absolutely apoplectic. Um, because they seen this as um, uh, something that happened outside of the political process, and and people were very very angry about it. And loyalism was jumping up and down, um, and David and Billy and Gusty and Plum and others were really doing their best to keep cool heads and say, trying to explain to loyalism, you know, this is a sovereign government. It can do what it wants outside of the process. We don't have any say over that. And I think the, the point that we wanted to make then when we met the delegation from the Irish government was that the political process has primacy, that nothing should happen beyond that if we are to make a serious go at this. We have delivered our message yeah. loud and clear and you've upset the apple cart. So no more banana skins. No more surprises. No more, no more prison releases. No, no more prisoner releases, yeah. and and of course that that was a tough week, mm. but there was there was tougher to come because as we know, um, Stevenson's day. Billy Wright was was murdered in um, in prison, and in the retaliation of that, the um, so called Red Hand defenders, and I remember um, the journalist uh, Brian Rowan saying at the time, you know. Uh, they asked who were the red hand defenders and he said well if if the UFF looked in the mirror I'm sure they could say to themselves I will not be a red hand defender I will not be a red hand defender so in other words they were that's who was involved in carrying out the attacks and of course at the same time um, the IRA under the auspices of direct action against drugs um, had been taken out some prominent drug dealers throughout the country that that I think both sides had seen a, a, an opportunity to take out people or kill people that they thought were causing problems and of course that led then to when the talk started in the new year both ceasefires were declared inoperable the suspensions uh, and the suspensions so we were at talks in London at, at Lancaster House if you remember and the UDP were uh, expelled from the talks we, along with the Irish government, decided today that the UDP was no longer eligible to participate in the talks. The UFF have themselves admitted responsibility for a series of appalling murders which have created such fear on the streets of Northern Ireland. The evidence before us was beyond doubt that the Mitchell principles of non-violence 
had clearly been breached. Anybody leaving the talks destabilizes it. Actions outside the talks affect the actions within the talks. DDP is firmly, absolutely, irrevocably uh, committed to the Mitchell principles and the principles of democracy. What we have done during this current crisis is to go to extreme lengths in order to exert our influence to end violence where it emanated from. That's Mo Molan and Gary McMichael speaking at press conferences during those London talks. The February talks then took place in Dublin and there was more red cards to come. Here's Senator George Mitchell again. We got to Dublin and of course the Unionist parties angry that a loyalist party had been expelled now insist that that is retaliation. Sinn Féin be expelled because of the participation of the IRA in what was the escalating violence. And we had a very difficult, controversial session in Dublin that focused almost entirely on that. In both London and Dublin, there was very little discussion of the, the real issues that uh, the parties faced that we were trying, we the chairman were trying to get them to focus on. So in similar fashion, Sinn Féin was expelled. But once again, when I informed them of that, uh, I made it clear that this was to be a suspension, not a permanent expulsion, and they later returned for the final push. I think it's ironic and it's sad that this attempt to exclude Sinn Féin is taking place here within the Irish jurisdiction. I think that's just one of the, the historical ironies of the situation. And I do believe that it's up to everyone, including the Irish government, to stand up for the rights of those people who vote for our party and to treat everyone on the basis of equality. And I think without equality, there cannot be a settlement. I am absolutely pissed off with trying to make this thing work. And those who have no interest in making it work seize upon two men being killed to exploit it and to bring this process down. That was Jerry Adams speaking to the media outside the Dublin talks in February 1998. With the talks in jeopardy, something needed to be done to get the paramilitaries back on board. Martin Manser recalls a fairly audacious intervention from Mo Molan, which had a significant impact. Then, and I'd always give her most credit for this, I mean, Mo Molan did something, she was the Northern Secretary, uh, something immensely courageous against advice. She went in and met the Loyalist prisoners. And that, I think, brought home to 10 Downing Street that the prisoners have to be part of the solution, otherwise there won't be one. The message that I brought was very clear and simple. The only way that we are going to make progress towards a permanent peace in Northern Ireland is by taking a proactive stance and talking to reach the broadest possible agreement. If we manage to get people around the table on Monday, we have a chance still to move this process forward. Let's hear again from Jonathan Powell, the Chief of Staff for Tony Blair. She decided to go into the prisons and talk to the loyalists and try and make sure they stayed in the process, they didn't walk away. Uh, we'd come to this decision to throw them out for a short period of time um, she didn't ask us about it. She just headed off and did it. And um, all credit to her because it was definitely the right thing to do and it worked. Uh, and we put this sort of punishment in place uh, but allowed both sides to come back in again. 
And I think that made it look more like this was going to be a serious process and not just a repeat of the bad old days where people do something, get thrown out, and we never get back to the table again. So I think that was reassuring that we uh, got through that, but it was pretty hairy. She did it, but she was accepted as her own lady and doing it. So it, it, it worked okay, and it didn't, it didn't do any harm. There may have been criticism openly, but you know, people, the critics would have said, well, that's what Mo does. This is Chris McCabe of the Northern Ireland office. Mo was great, and she was characteristically herself. She came to us a nil lady, and um, her her eccentricity was almost was almost increased after that illness. But uh, that worked. There was at times it was necessary to to bolster loyalist confidence in those situations. They were, a lot of what we did was to reassure them that. They had a place too. They weren't being overlooked. And that was a big step for that. They they felt that Sinn Féin got all the limelight and they were always having to hang on behind. And that that helped. So it it was a good thing at the good time, in my opinion. While all that drama was going on, an important step was taken in February when we drafted a Heads of Agreement. Jonathan Powell explains. I'm not sure I realised the significance of it at the time. But when I look at other negotiations around the world, it really was important. And that was the Heads of Agreement document in February. Yeah. Um, and what we tried to do was set out on a very short piece of paper what was in the negotiation, what was out of the negotiation. So it made it clear that United Ireland was out of the negotiation, which made it more possible for the unionists, um, but made it clear that there was going to be power sharing in the negotiation, there was going to be north-south bodies and so on. And that was really quite a fraught negotiation it was really very, very difficult. Finally got David Trimble on board um, for the the the, the, uh, the Heads of Agreement document uh, and went to bed feeling quite pleased with myself on Sunday night. I wrote down and made 80 phone calls that day to try and get people in, uh, lined up on it. Uh, woke up the next morning to have David Trimble call me nearly in tears to say that he couldn't sell the document to John Taylor and his other colleagues and he was going to attack it. <laughs> and I had to then sort of get them back in line to um, to make sure they did sign up for it. And the heads of agreement didn't make a big splash at the time, but I think by ruling things out of the negotiation and making clear what we were talking about, I think that had an important impact on being able to get to that um, uh, Easter uh, deadline that, that George set. And then the British government, I think, got more serious uh, into the talks. There was far more involvement by, by Tony Blair uh, and myself. The talks were not just left to the ongoing work that was going on between uh, between British ministers and Liz O'Donnell and, and David Andrews, but, you know, a, a more intense level. And I think through that February, late February, March, uh, we were coming to a position where uh, substance was being discussed, but unfortunately very little agreement. The, the basis of the talks where nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. And it was increasingly difficult uh, to get traction. I, I don't remember pessimism. There were moments and days of pessimism, but I'd say the, the ship continued to sail. And your involvement and your personal approach and Tony Blair's personal approach and the commitment of officials and supporting ministers round about you uh, on both sides was was huge. Plus, on both sides, dare I say it, advisors who really knew the score and between them had, had been round every corner. 
sometimes in opposition to one another if we were dealing, you know, but but always heading in the same way. So I felt the whole crew, the, the captains, the, the joint captains and the crews were keeping that ship steady. It wasn't completely groundless or, or stupid optimism, not that you would think it would be, but specifically my team was out around Northern Ireland and, and the Irish government had their own, the, the travellers, as I think they were called. Uh, we talked to, you talked, we went out and I had people, you would talk to the mayor during the morning of, a, of some council, you go and have a heart to heart and they really were, people liked to, it was done very confidentially, you talk. And then you'd go and talk perhaps to the local dentist over lunch and then you go down to a grocery shop and talk and you got, you got that feeling and it wasn't always what was being said and that was all being put into the, the massive amounts of paper were written about those conversations and there was that feeling and your own government was getting it and sometimes we compared notes without naming names of people sometimes the names were men- mentioned my Secretary of State went round uh, starting with Patrick Mayhew and Mo Molan we took them round areas and they would walk around the town and one of the things we did even was to people would be very nice to them generally when they were no matter who it was they met them in the street of Armagh or Coal Island or Port Rush one or two of my team would, would lurk away and hear what they were you know what they were saying to one another as they had you know they'd walk behind them as they were saying he was a nice man and that was awful or I told him what what and that images actually what people said were always what they felt but we built all that picture up and fed that in and that suggested that the ship was continuing to move in the right direction on the next episode of as i remember it i think it's time that we started moving towards drawing these talks to a conclusion and reaching decisions and therefore i am setting a deadline of thursday the 9th of april a deadline is set but would we reach an agreement in time you could feel it in the air inside Castle Buildings that we needed to reach this agreement. As I remember it, it's a News Talk original podcast. The executive producer is Mark Simpson. The producers, Jess Kelly and Sandra Honan. Sound mixing, Lachlan Hart. Video producer, Rory Walsh. Archive used in this episode was from BBC and ITN, go to newstalk.com forward slash Good Friday Agreement for bonus material, including full interviews, videos, a timeline of the peace process and a glossary of who's who in the Good Friday Agreement.